Welcome to the Econ Pop Podcast, where we sift through the haystack of popular culture to find the needle of economics within, and then stab you with it. I'm your host, Andrew Heaton. Our website is econstories.tv, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, or find links and other content related to today's conversation. Joining me today are Steve Horwitz, the Charles A. Dana Professor and Chair of the Department of Economics at St. Lawrence University, and Paul Cantor, the Clifton Waller Barrett Professor of English at the University of Virginia. And I'm Andrew Heaton, a baritone. Paul, Steve, thank you for joining us today. Pleasure to be here as always. Good to be here. And uh, today we're discussing Ghostbusters, uh, which is uh, bittersweet. Uh, uh, sweet because it's an awesome movie that I loved during my childhood and still love in my adulthood now. Uh, bitter because Harold Ramis has recently uh, departed us and is presumably uh, joining the ranks of good ghosts there out in the ether. Uh, but will be the film we're discussing today. I, I presume you've both watched it? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I, many times. Yeah, I have this vision of Harold Ramis uh, up in heaven eating all the Stay puffed marshmallows he can possibly eat. <laughs> I, I hope so. He was an incredibly funny guy. Uh, and and uh, ho- hopefully we'll do Groundhog Day at some point uh, because that is my favorite film of all time. But yeah. uh, for Ghostbusters, um, there's a few things we can talk about. But before we get into to entrepreneurship and the EPA, which I, I feel like are the two big things that, that we're going to be talking about from an economic standpoint, um, one of the... I- iconic uh, scenes in the movie that I've, I've often heard quoted is where the future Ghostbusters have lost their jobs. They've been kicked out of the university environment. And Dan Aykroyd opines, you don't know the private sector. They actually want results. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, both of you being professors, I-, I wanted to give you a chance to offer a rejoinder to that statement or conversely to, to tell us the difference between the private sector and the public sector. I, I got nothing. I think that's dead on. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's exactly right. Uh, and if they did expect results, they wouldn't know how to measure them to save their lives. Uh, that's in fact what, what's going on now. They have this crazy thing called academic assessment, and they're just making up ways of showing whether there are results or not, and they're just fooling themselves. <laughs> it is. I mean, I, I do think you know, there is a serious issue underlying there, and Paul's kind of touching on it, which is, it, one of the challenges in academia is is how you know I think and there's it comes at two ends I mean the, in the movie they're I think really talking about the research end right and and you know right. these guys are researchers into the paranormal and they need to produce results and, and I think that's you know that's one piece of the puzzle in academia the other piece of course is the teaching puzzle how do we really know what our students are learning right and whether they're meeting the the sort of things that we think are important about the edu- you know the the education process which is a which is a legitimate question to ask as yeah. Paul suggests the methods we go about you know these days people the methods that people are using and trying to figure that out are, are often problematic but but it is true you know that when you have a, in the private sector you do have a bottom line you do have a you know the 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 profit and loss ultimate calculation you can't keep on not getting results or getting bad results in in academia you know and, and you can linger on and certainly in government too you can linger on <laughs> yeah. uh, with without getting results and I, and that line yeah. is is a pithy version of it uh, yeah it's a, it's a variant of the socialist calculation debate. And in fact, Ludwig von Mises' book on bureaucracy is wonderful on just uh, this point that uh, in contrast to what you have in a uh, corporation, in the uh, uh, in a real market, uh, there is no bottom line in academics. There's no way of measuring. We, we fool ourselves uh, that we can use mathematics the way a company can uh, when it's looking at its actual profit and loss uh, sh- sheet. In this case, there's no, in academics, there's no way to uh, measure the profit. Now, the bill Murray character when they're fired uh, when they lose their funding says but the kids love us 
that's that's the only way they measure it. Uh, Interestingly, the the university where I got my my master's degree, um, uh, the University of Edinburgh, actually has has or had a paranormal research department at one point. Uh, I don't know if it's still there anymore. Um, But, you know, the thing, Andrew, is you couldn't tell the difference between that and a lot of the other things going on in academia today anyway. So you might as well have one. Well, uh, actually, a a quick thing that I'll ask you, because I do want to get to entrepreneurship, but I'm curious because you, uh, Steve, a moment ago, you you mentioned um, uh, kind of funneling money into to projects which have no immediate results uh, would would you like I look at something like the the jet propulsion laboratories that are used by NASA uh, as being a very large public expenditure but really a, a fairly effective one uh, or, or we might talk about like the human genome project or something like that would you would you see a, a place for public funding of such things or would you want it all to be private well, you know, here's a couple of issues to think about here, right? I mean, you know, we, we can, it's easy to point to the things that are appear to be successes. What we don't see are all the failures, right? And so, you know, it, there's no, even someone like me, who's a very radical libertarian, I, the argument isn't that government can never do anything right, okay? After all, we, you know, we made it to the moon, unless you buy the conspiracy theories, we made it to the moon, okay? The, the argument is, is that the things that government gets right uh, come at a huge cost, and that the private sector is better at figuring out those right things, and, and better at eliminating error, and better at weeding out the mistakes more quickly and more effectively. So, I mean, just because we see things that have worked from government funding doesn't necessarily mean that that the reason they worked was because of the government funding. Yeah, we or they made, wouldn't work otherwise. Yeah, we made more progress in the general area of flight in the first half of the 20th century than we did in the second half of the 20th century, uh, and uh, that's because a lot of the development in the first half of the 20th century in the flight industry was private. And once we turned space over to the government, uh, look what happened. And, uh, and com- it's astounding how little progress we made in the commercial use of space when yeah. the government was at the center of everything. Well, and I, I, compare, that, compare that to the Internet, right? I mean, yes. one of the interesting things about the Internet is, is that all, there were people who kind of imagined a world where we'd have the, you know, the libraries of the world at our fingertips electronically. But none of them ever stopped to think that the, what would drive it would be the commercial uses. I mean, the, for a long time, the most profitable thing on the Internet was pornography, right? And so I think that, it still is, you know, yeah. And it might, probably still is. But the, whatever, the, whatever the case, right, the, the, the sort of advances there have come through that competitive process of people trying to use this technology to, to make a buck and to please consumers. And as Paul said, I think it, you, know, you can look at that contrast between the Internet and, and, and flight uh, is, a, is a useful one. Well, I, I will say that I, I have a soft spot for NASA, uh, but I but I am nonetheless uh, intrigued to hear what you're saying. And we can uh, we can come together and that uh, really neat things are happening in the uh, space industry right now with Elon Musk and with uh, Richard Branson and all those. But we're we're wandering a bit beyond, and I, I blame myself. We're wandering a bit beyond the pale in a movie about ghosts and entrepreneurship. So we can we can zero back in on that. Uh, that the the Ghostbusters are uh, living this entrepreneurial dream, so to speak, where they recognize that there is is a need, which is to dispense with ghosts, and they begin a business to do it. And uh, the villain in the movie, I suppose there are two villains. One is an ethereal uh, elder god of a, an extinct Sumerian civilization, and the other one is an EPA official. Uh, and those are, <laughs> those are the two dual forces that they must combat. Uh, I have reasonably little commentary about the Sumerian god, but we could talk about the, uh, the, the difficulties that they face as entrepreneurs 
entrepreneurs uh, throughout the movie um, after they've started. Yeah, Paul, you want to go ahead first on this? Oh one? yeah, well, yeah. it is interesting because they do encounter all the things a startup uh, yeah. business needs. For example, uh, uh, one of the things they ask very early on is where are we going to get the money to go into business? And uh, they mortgage their own house. By the way, they pay about nineteen percent interest. <laughs> yes, <rate>. yes, <laughs> I, I, I noticed <laughs> that. Yeah, early eighties. Yeah, but gas prices were great for that ambulance, right? Yeah, so. yeah. but that's the sort of thing you have to do. You see the risk taking aspect of uh, a true entrepreneur. They don't sit around and apply for government grants to develop the ghost-busting business. They actually put their own assets uh, on risk. Uh, now, one thing they say, again, early in the film is the franchise rights alone will make us rich beyond our wildest dreams. Right. Now, there's entrepreneurial vision, but understanding they've got a goal and that they're not just going to start up this small business. Their dream is to franchise this. Right. And they go through all this stuff that they, they get their outfits right. Uh, they get that car that they'll use. They develop a logo. We really see all the things a small businessman has to do to succeed. Uh, and they're all quite reasonable things to do. And they do them well. Yeah. And, and I would add, you know, we were discussing in the context of, of, the, of the Lego movie, the idea of sort of using the materials you have around you. They take this old firehouse, right, mm-hmm. and convert it into their headquarters. Again, they didn't build a new shiny thing. They took, they <laughs> took a very sort of wise, cost-effective way. To, to to do this and um, and I, yeah as, as Paul said they, they really is a nice you know all in this sort of se- the sequence that they go through here is a really nice encapsulation of, of the of the things you have to do and and the barriers you potentially face in trying to set up trying to set up a, a small business this way Paul, yeah, Paul I want to uh, I want to emphasize something that you said a moment ago about the fact that they are they are risking their capital and that that, that is a part of entrepreneurialism um, I have uh, a lot of friends here on the East Coast and, and back in the UK who um, believe it's just implicitly unfair for CEOs of companies to make uh, like a, a disproportionate amount of money compared to their employees, that it's just inherently evil. Uh, and I, I, I look at that and I'm like, you know, if I, I, I don't make a lot of money right now, but let's say I took 80% of my savings and put it in a company and I, I risk wiping myself out, that's putting me in a different scenario than somebody that's an employee who granted would need to look for new work, but wouldn't have obliterated their, you know, their entire assets in the, in the process of trying to create a new enterprise. So there is a certain amount of reward that you ought to be entitled to if you're also risk risking so much to do something. Uh, uh, this is one reason academics uh, are so bad at understanding business and appreciating it. By and large, academics are extraordinarily risk-averse. They weren't the kids who went out uh, and uh, started up little businesses. Uh, they've actually gone into academics because it's such a, a pre-planned uh, route to uh, succeed. You take tests, you pass tests, you advance to the next rung, and eventually you're a professor. Uh, and I find that my colleagues have a very hard time uh, assessing risks. They sometimes come to me for economic advice. They despise my uh, free market views, but they understand (laughs) I know something more about stocks and bonds than they do. And then when I try to explain them uh, the trade-off between return and risk, and they can't understand that. Why? Why? It's unfair. Why should the thing that gives the biggest yield also be the riskiest thing? It should should be based on seniority and IQ points, right? That should be 
be the entirety of your income. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, they and- don't appreciate what it is to take risks. That's why so many, you know, uh, examples like Bill Gates, uh, Ed Land of Polaroid. I mean, so many of the most successful business people are people who dropped out of academics. Yep. Uh, just the two things I'd add. I can remember a story from a colleague of mine uh, who was talking about how stressful being a college professor was at, a, you know, at lunch one time. And another colleague whose father was a businessman said, my, my dad, make, my father spent his life making phone calls where a million bucks was on the line. And you're telling me your job is stressful. Right? So that sort of notion of, of what's really going on in the business world, I think, is, uh, you know, that, that, that's, that's a big part of this. And I think the other thing about the, on the CEO point, risk is certainly part of it. But the other thing I think that gets missed is that, that many people um, um, assume that salaries and income are related to how hard people work. There's been this uh, video that's kind of gone viral about wealth in America, and it shows all the dispropor- you know, the disproportionality and equality of wealth in America. And it, 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 it makes a point towards the end about the that gap between CEO salary and others. And it, and it talks about it in terms of, do you, do we really think that the CEO works 300 times harder than the, the, you know, the sort of day laborer? And it's not about working hard. It's about the creation of value. If the CEO is able to make decisions and move resources in ways that make that firm much more valuable, they're going to get paid more. Uh, the, the value, while the, you know, the sort of worker on the factory floor certainly adds value, the, the sort of marginal value that he or she adds, it's far less. Even though they're both working very hard, perhaps, right? Uh, it's not about hard work. It's not about merit, per se. It's sort of moral merit. It's about do you or do you not create value? That's what markets reward. And, and yeah, I always point out to my colleagues when they hit me with the labor theory of value, yep. uh, that's the undergraduate's theory of paper. Grades. Yep. Why did I get a C? I worked so hard so on hard. the paper. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> and we know it's a C paper. It has right. no nothing to do with whether you worked hard on it or not. That's and right. to, to, to weigh in briefly as well, uh, um, I, I frequently hear people get angry about um, just the amount of money that uh, rich people make and how that should just be automatically taxed away because it's inherently bad for people to be that rich. Uh, and something that I think. I don't know why people don't understand this. Rich people, um, and I'm not one, but I know several, they don't keep their money in mason jars under their bed. Uh, they're, they're not hoarding it in their basement. They're, they're putting it in, basically they're investing it in startup companies and in existing companies. So all of that money that they're, they're allegedly hoarding is actually going back into the economy and creating jobs and creating that value that you're talking about. And if they're putting it, and if they're putting it in the bank, that's where people like the Ghostbusters get their loans from, right? Absolutely. So, you know, so there, yes, there is that certainly that process going on. And let's let's talk a little bit about the Ghostbusters and what they're going through because for for them to start up a company, I I think that the movie actually. Um, uh, for for good reason because it would be boring does not show how complicated it would have been for them to start a business in New York City like uh, I one of my friends began a business here last year uh, a, a film company and uh, in order to begin any business in New York City one of the steps is that you have to book advertising space in a print newspaper and announce the creation of the the business um, I, I don't know why I, I suppose that's to keep um, businesses from being you know uh, underground I, I I have no idea what the logic is but there's all these tiny little steps that are necessary. And when you add up, say, 30 or 40 of these, any one of which could shut your business down, now you've got to hire an attorney to make sure that you're hitting all of these uh, dots on the I's and, and crossing the T's and things like that. And, and it becomes a much more cumbersome process. And that means that it's slower for you to begin your business, slower for you to hire people, and slower for you to make profit on it. 
Absolutely. I just, you know, if, if you had tried to set the Ghostbusters movie in in many countries in the world, uh, it's they still wouldn't be open yet. They'd still 30 years later in 2014 be trying to get all the forms in and meet the, you know, meet the bureaucrats. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it I mean, as you say, it's hard to do it dramatically. Uh, all of those things are true. Uh, and, you know, imagine I think one of the interesting questions is imagine now trying to even open that business and, and you know, paying for the health insurance and dealing with Obamacare. I mean, some, all these kind of things that you'd have to deal with, you know, labor regulations. They, you know, they hire Annie Potts like that. They hire Willie Hudson, you know, like that. Right. And so they, they get. You know, they can do all these things pretty quickly. Uh, If they were making a realistic movie, even by 1984 standards, you know, from conception to opening would have taken certainly much longer than the film suggests that it took. Right. All of which would slow down. I mean, that's one one of the... And the real losers from that, of course, are the people, you know, are, are Sigourney Weaver and Rick Moranis, right? Right. And the know. entire human race. Yeah, right. <laughs> Not to mention, yes. Well, and, 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 and if, we want to, if we want to be uh, bleeding hearts, and I, I am a, a bleeding heart uh, libertarian, um, you know, the, the, the poor people who are in need of jobs are going to suffer yeah. as well because That's they're right. not going to be able to have that position open to them because they're going to be too busy filling out forms and they're going to be trying to they're, they're going to be spending money on the attorney rather than on the additional secretary to handle business. And yeah, the the Ernie Hudson character says at one point, "If there's a steady paycheck in it, I'll believe in anything you say." <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, and it shows the advantage to this man who uh, had no other job and is given an opportunity. One of the things the film does show, and it's related to this point, is the sheer impatience of the true entrepreneur. Uh, that uh, they bend the laws sometimes, they ignore the laws sometimes. They just want to get in business. Uh, there's that wonderful moment when the Dan Aykroyd character says, as uh, we really haven't had a successful test of this equipment. Uh, (laughs) That's the nightmare of any government regulatory agency, but in a way that is the spirit of the entrepreneur. I've talked to many entrepreneurs and they pride themselves on that moment when they undertook something they really couldn't do, Uh, you know, where they got a bid on some kind of project they'd never handled before. They, of course, told the people they were old hands at it, uh, but then they just forced themselves to get things done, to get them done on the deadline. That's what makes the good entrepreneur. That's what distinguishes the true entrepreneur from the failure. And, and I think we have to have a society in which we're willing to tolerate that kind of risk, right? I mean, this yes. echoes back to our discussions of Dallas Buyers Club in the sense that the same way, you know, prohibitions on these on, on, on these sort of drugs in the testing process cost lives because we're not willing to take those risks. Same thing here, right? I mean, if you're, you know, the, to the degree we make it harder for entrepreneurs to start up, uh, we're, we're arguably guarding against one risk, maybe, but we're risking the lives of the people, in this case, they're trying to help. So, so you know, the, our willingness to, to understand and, tr- and, and accept those trade-offs, those involving risk, are key to having a thriving entrepreneurial society. Well, actually, I, th- I think this is a good jumping point to talking about the EPA, uh, because we're, we're, we're bringing up the idea of this untested equipment and the, the you know, the human character, the, the, the relatable villain in the movie, um, which is very, very Reagan-era, is this, this EPA official wearing a three-piece suit who's very smug and and knows what's going on uh, and is 
kind of a a white collar thug that's pushing them around. Uh, now uh, I'll I'll weigh in. I, I'm you know not being an anarcho capitalist. I'm, I'm I, I like the idea of federalism and competing laboratories of democracy. So I, I can appreciate why there needs to be an EPA because pollution goes back and forth between um, between states, and so there needs to be some sort of um, supra body that can can mediate between them. That, that's my opinion. However, um, it can become overly cumbersome, and in many cases. Uh, needlessly cumbersome um, and can just intervene in businesses like this and uh, make it difficult for them to operate. Well, I, I just the one thing I, I think to point out is the kind of, you know, the, the, that character, the William Athelstan character is sort of uh, uh, has the brutal force of the state at his command and, and and does not seem to be bound too strictly by any kind of process or, you know, he can come in and more or less do what he wants. And there's a kind of discretion and a absence of the rule of law there uh, that, that, you know, they don't even have, the Ghostbusters don't even have a sense of what it is they've done and, and, and you know, what were these, how did they, not, you know, were they ever informed about these regulations and so on? And then, too, we noticed that that the concern about, you know, how they're storing up these the, the ghosts, right, ends up getting in the way of them actually solving these real entrepreneur, these needs that are out there. So we, we it's a really nice way to so we see how this the can the can. Concerns about one set of issue, as as well intentioned as they might be, unleash this kind of discretionary power that ends up with with all kinds of uh, negative, often unintended consequences elsewhere. Yeah, it takes us back to what we saw in Dallas Buyers Club. I mean. If you accept the premise of the film, we are facing the apocalypse here. We are facing the apocalypse (laughs) destruction of humanity, and the EPA is worried about a little pollution. uh, uh, It'll enforce its petty regulations and stand in the way of the people who are about to save the space-time continuum or whatever it is (laughs) that's being ripped by Ozer from Samaria. (laughs) Uh, Well, Anna, I'll I'll, I'll put in a quick quick real-world thing that I I think people are largely unaware of, which is a, a sleight of hand that the EPA is used for all the time by Congress. Uh, and that is that um, Congress really likes to write a law that says uh, we're going to make a Clean Water Act where um, all of the water you know, coming out of um, uh, the Mississippi River and its tributaries has to have uh, X X amount of pollutants uh, per cubic meter or whatever. So we're, we're going to set this threshold um, and we're going to um, give the EPA the regulatory ability to make that happen. Um, and they'll make it very, very vague. So they'll, they'll set the benchmark, but they won't specify how they're going to do it. Um, that way, I as the congressman can go home to my individual district and go, you know, I have been fighting for clean water. Now, I'm, I'm fully aware that in order for that to happen, the EPA is going to have to shut down a bunch of factories and impose a lot of restrictions which are going to hurt business. And so next week I can go, the damned EPA and all of its terrible regulations are killing business. Yeah. Uh, and and it's, a, it's a neat sleight of hand that a lot of these regulatory agencies do um, where um, Congress itself is able to sort of abjure its responsibilities uh, by passing them on to them. Well, and, and there's a, the problem of the seen and the unseen here, right? I mean, you know, we, we might see the, the the apparent cleanup or the enforcement attempt to enforce the law that's taking place. What we don't see are the costs, right? The costs are more subtle. They're more long run. They're more dispersed. We don't see the jobs that were lost here or the factory that closed here. But, but you know, we see, again, the attempts, which, you know, aren't 
always successful. One other thing to think about here, too, of course, is that all these regulations we're talking about, including the EPA, right? the burden on a small entrepreneurial firm like the Ghostbusters is much bigger proportionally than it would be for a large, you know, mega corporation who can deal with this better. Yeah, and right, and and who can uh, fight it off, who probably has political connections to call off the dogs, right? It's easy to pick on the little guy here, and oftentimes the EPA is working at the behest of larger firms as a way to eliminate startup competition, who's playing by, who has come up with some new way of doing something that, oh, we don't know what the environmental effects might be, precautionary principle, whatever we want to invoke here, right, that end up that end up uh, burdening the small businesses and, 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 again, cut off that entrepreneurial innovation. It's interesting that the... Uh Walter Peck character, that's the William Atherton character playing uh, the EPA guy, he really has the same personality type as the EPA, as the FDA types we saw in Dallas Buyers Club. Uh, that is, you've got these self-important, self-righteous people who are basically uh, loving to meddle in people's lives. Uh, they're holier than thou. They just like to show their power. It's interesting that both films capture that aspect Aspect, that kind of bureaucratic mindset that really does uh, threaten to stifle innovation in the country. And we see uh, the uh, entrepreneurs in both films are so much more likable uh, as human beings. They're more creative, they're more inventive. And Atherton plays that role so well. I mean, he was the same character in the Die Hard movies, right? I mean, he's just, you know, <laughs> that sort of smarmy, arrogant, you know, what, yeah. Well, Paul, I'm going to direct a question to you at this point. Uh, you, you, you bring up the, the smug, archetypical, you know, apertise cheek character um i i as the the consumer who's not very involved want to make sure that my water is drinkable and that no one is creating you know thermonuclear devices that could potentially detonate in the capture of ghosts um so is there a role for a a watchdog agency uh if so what should it be Consumer reports. Yeah. Uh, there's no reason to think uh, that the market isn't able to solve the watchdog function. We have underwriters li- uh, laboratory, consumer reports. There are many examples uh, of uh, perfectly private agencies which have to do the job well because they can't enforce things. They can't. They don't have the prestige, the government behind them. Everything depends upon their reputation. There are so many things in the world uh, where uh, people learn to to trust uh, a, a company that does a good job of performing the watchdog dog function. The problem with giving that watchdog function to the government is there are no checks uh, on the government agencies. They don't have to perform well. They can just fall back on their government status. Uh, they can't be sued. They have sovereign immunity. Uh, uh, the best way for people uh, to check out products is to check them out. Check them out themselves. You know, I drink tap water. I have no problem with that. But if, you, if you're worried about your water, there's various ways you can get purified water. There's a whole market, has de- an enormous market has developed in that respect. Uh, the free market is perfectly capable uh, of, of performing the function of monitoring itself. When you create uh, uh, entities within the market whose sole function is to perform yeah. the monitor duty. Steve, to piggyback on that, would I be would I be because it sounds like you you were you were agreeing with one another yep. on that? Would I would I be correct in assuming that if you were to pull back on the involvement of the EPA and other regulatory agencies, that consumers would naturally put far more weight on JD Bauer and Associates? Because I have no idea what that is right now. But if right. if say there if say there wasn't anybody regulating cars, I'd probably care much more about what JD Power and Associates said. Right. 
Yeah, right. Let me give you an example from another place. Do, do you even think about where your bank invests their money? No, you see, you know, FDIC insured on it, right? Mm-hmm. And so you, you, you know, you walk right in, and we know that that doesn't mean your bank's not going to fail. So in a world where we don't have these agencies, you know, these sort of monopolistic kinds of uh, agencies, uh, consumers have to take more responsibility for sure. But think about how people use Yelp. To get restaurants, I had dinner last night at a restaurant. I found on, I checked on Yelp and found on Yelp, and you know, learned how to navigate and trust those reviews. And then I turned around and wrote one myself because it was a really good restaurant. So we have, like Paul said, you know, Underwriters Laboratory, Consumer Reports, all these things. And importantly, as he was suggesting, we have the ability to exit if we don't like what these agencies and these institutions are doing. There's competition. The other thing I'd say, you know, when we think about environmental stuff in particular, it's not enough to just say get rid of the regulators. Many times, envir- I mean, environmental problems are real uh, in, in some cases, and they're, they're real often because the rules of the game, the institutions, the property rights aren't clarified. We, we don't have the infrastructure of a market to generate the, that, that competition, generate those good consequences, generate those signals. So, we, you know, what we have to be thinking about both is what's the damage that the regulators are doing how do we stop that but then how do we encourage in the marketplace the emergence of these rules and institutions that will enable markets to self-govern in all the ways that we're talking about so it has to be a two-step process we need to have the market has to develop those institutions itself and oftentimes why we perceive a need for the epa to come in is that markets lack and often because government has made it difficult lack the defined property rights lack the other kinds of rules that are important well i'm going I think I'll ask you guys one more question, and then we're, we're going to wrap up here in a moment. Um, I, I'm, I'm intrigued with your, your very private sector model um, in dealing with, with pollution and environment. And uh, so uh, avoiding the whole, the whole um, topic of, of global warming, just talking about, say, acid rain, like some, something that everybody agrees exists. Um, if, if the Ghostbusters are in the process of creating or uh, detaining these ghosts, they're creating acid rain that's falling on, on two separate states simultaneously. Um, what would the private sector solution be to that? Would it be that that they whoever's getting acid rain would would sue Ghostbusters and the courts would mediate? Would it be a, a postdoc thing? How would you how would you deal with that? I think pollution. It- it's, it's complicated because you need, you know, the question is whether you can identify the point, that, you know, the source of the pollution, right? If you know it's the Ghostbusters, they're causing the, the, the what we would call a negative externality in economics, right? And, and then those who are being harmed by that uh, would have recourse through the legal system to say, you're, you know, I have a property right here. You've invade, you've, you know, you've, you've, you've committed a tort, you've crossed that line, uh, I'm entitled to restitution. And then there's ways to negotiate it out. And then we're into sort of the complexities of the economics of externalities, like the, the Coase theorem and whether people can bargain away these problems. And, you know, would you, may, maybe you would be willing to accept the acid rain if, if the Ghostbusters paid you enough, right, to take it, right? So one solution here might be, let us acid rain on your grass, we'll pay you $10,000 a month for the right to do that. You might well take that deal. So there's all kinds of ways that we could we could work these things out. We don't know exactly exactly what they are, because oftentimes we have not allowed those processes to develop to do them. Yeah, people forget or never knew uh, that ordinary common law, tort law, dealt with these issues in the 19th century uh, until businesses got governments uh, to exempt them from tort law uh, and and uh, and created this problem uh, by government regulation that protected companies against suits against them. So a lot to do with the railroads uh, and the primary example of crony capitalism uh, were a mechanism 
mechanism, a legal mechanism, a common law mechanism that was in place was actually destroyed by governments in the 19th century at the behest of big business. These are these are good points. And uh, with with Ghostbusters, aside from the fact that uh, I I, uh, am very much reaffirmed in my opinion that if I am haunted by some sort of spectral problem, I will either consult a private business solution like the Ghostbusters or a private charity like the Catholic Church. (laughs) I will unlikely go to the EPA to deal with it. Um, I think uh, we've done well to talk about um, entrepreneurship in terms of the the risks and rewards that you get out of it, but also the incredible costs that are incurred by businessmen in in actually setting up shop. One one point that I did want to shoehorn in right before we leave is that uh, a lot of the time uh, people talk about America as a very laissez-faire country with uh, very little regulation, which is uh, simply not true. Even when you look at um, these these alleged you know socialist uh, um, socialist paradises like Sweden and Norway, they actually have far less regula- uh, regulations in terms of startup companies than we do. Yep. Um, and they do. Uh, they, they they do have a larger uh, social safety net. They have higher taxes, but you can basically you you want to start an elk slaughtering company, you just fill out a form and you're done. Uh, whereas we, we don't really have that same level, and it puts a drag on us. And same um, is true of their trade, international trade, too. Yeah. Um, so, so props to them on that. Well, uh, uh, final, uh, final thoughts. Would either of you like to uh, give a, a closing statement and or uh, advice on getting rid of ghosts? I'll just I'll just say if I'm ever if my house is ever haunted I want it to be haunted by Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> and uh, Paul, who, who would you want to have haunt your house? Uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, 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 not Rick Moranis, I guess. <laughs> uh, I, I think, uh, you know what, I, I think I'm going to go with um, Oscar Wilde, actually. I think uh, I think Oscar Wilde would provide endless amusement for me throughout the day if he were, if he were haunting me. And I would appear to be very witty if other people could not see him. Yep. <laughs> good well, luck. Th- thank you very much. Well, and uh, you all will, in a good way, haunt my thoughts until we meet next time. And I appreciate you very much weighing in and making me and our listeners smarter. Steve and Paul, thank you so much. Thank you. You're welcome. This has been the Econ Pop Podcast. Thanks for listening. For more information about our show or to visit our archives, go to econstories.tv. To watch the Econ Pop web series, go to youtube.com slash econstories. It's like this show, only shorter and with moving pictures.